Well, let's open up his word this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. I'm a little giddy to to teach on this this morning. I'm very excited for that. If you've been with us and you were here last week, perhaps you come in this morning with your head still spinning a little bit or your mind or your brain kind of blown a little bit, because last week we studied God's sovereignty. We studied the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge and the beauty and the complexity of his sovereignty and election and predestination and providence and concurrence, lots of big words, lots of confusion, and maybe you have like smoke coming out of your ears as you're like, brain cannot hold all of this. Or I felt sometimes I was like the computer where the thing is just like spinning. That's like how my brain was last week sometimes. It reminds me of Isaiah 55 that God's ways are higher than our ways. So we're left last week like, whoa, God's plans are huge. And Pastor Matt kind of concluded with this tension uh, of this seeming contradiction of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. How can God be completely sovereign over all of our salvation? And yet we are still called to respond to him. How does that work? And as we studied last week, Matt said, choose God as he is choosing you. If Romans 9 is all about God choosing us and God's sovereign plan for for existence and salvation, then Romans 10 is the opposite side of the coin of us choosing God. It is man's responsibility. What role do I play in responding to God's call in my life? Or maybe a simpler way to say it is the way one man who came up to Jesus one day said, Teacher, what must I do to be saved? That's what Romans 10 is about. So if you want to know how you become a Christian, what do you need to do to be saved? Listen, because that's exactly what Romans 10 is about. Now we're going to start at the very end of chapter 9. We left three verses off last week because they really set the stage for everything we're going to talk about this morning. Paul shares a little story or a little illustration, if you will, that sets the stage for his argument in Romans 10. This is what he says in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Read along with me. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it by faith, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And here's his picture. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So Paul begins his exposition in Romans 10 with an illustration of a stone in a road. Okay, So think about you're walking along a road and then there's this massive stone in the middle of the road. And this stone either causes people to stumble or to believe. The Gentiles were willing to believe this stone and have righteousness by faith, which is what all of the book of Romans is about, while the Jews found this stone a huge stumbling block. Or in other words, those who knew the most about God did not come to know God, while those who knew the least about God ended up becoming known by him. 
Those who wanted to be righteous ended up being dead in their sins, and the ones who least wanted to be righteous ended up becoming holy and blameless in his sight. Why? Because they viewed the stone differently. And so the very first advice or the very first responsibility we have and Paul's warning to us is don't stumble over Jesus. Don't stumble over Jesus. Now, why would they do that? And how do we do that? That's what Paul begins chapter 10 with. So these first seven verses, he illustrates for us three ways that they stumble over Jesus. He goes on in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're, they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them and, contrary, die by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, and who will descend from the dead, that is to bring Christ, who will descend to the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. I'll stop there and talk for a minute. So the first way that Paul describes that they stumbled over Jesus is that the Jews and we had zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge. Now, certainly the Jews had knowledge of some things. They knew the law, but they did not have knowledge of Christ or they rejected knowledge of Christ. They pursued the law passionately, but they had missed how the scripture led them to Jesus. And in this first section of Romans 10, Paul debunks the popular modern day proverb that it doesn't matter what you believe, it just matters that you believe in something. This is the all roads lead to heaven, right? It doesn't matter what you believe, it just matters that you believe something sincerely. Is that true? The Bible says you're not saved by zeal, you're saved by faith. You're not saved by zeal. You can believe something sincerely and still be sincerely wrong. Paul wept over the Israelites who had sincere zeal for God but refused to acknowledge Jesus, and Paul knew this well because he did it himself. He zealously persecuted Christians before Christ saved him. Now, how is that relevant to us? It's relevant to us because it means the object of your faith matters. What you believe in matters. Just, not just that you believe or that you believe it passionately, but what you believe. And often we get this backwards as, as believers or as, as people in church that we almost place more emphasis in how passionate we feel rather than what we believe in. Let me give you an example. I remember having a conversation uh, with a sister in Christ one time when she was facing her death. She was dying of cancer and she was afraid. She was struggling, struggling with fear and doubt, as I imagine many of us would be if we were in that same circumstance. And she was wondering, what, what's wrong with my faith? Why am I struggling with fear and doubt? Is, is there something wrong with me doubting everything? And I just told her, I said, sister, you are not saved by the amount of faith you have. Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So it's not the amount of your faith, it's who your faith is in that saves you. 
Jesus is who saves you. Not how passionately you have that faith, but in who Jesus is. Zeal is good, don't get me wrong, but it must be accompanied by the right knowledge. Let me give you another example. So it's springtime, March Madness is in the air. Oh, it's the best. The weather is warm, but we just left a winter season where everything is icy. And I grew up in Florida, so I didn't ever see this before. But uh, I came up here in the Midwest, and, you know, lakes and rivers and ponds, they freeze, right? That's what happens, right? All your kids are like, yeah, duh. I lived in Florida, man. Come on. We had like stingrays and stuff, right? And so everything freezes over. Now, when you get the ice frozen on the water, what do you do? You kind of like walk out on it. I'm like, what are you doing? You're going to die, right? And, and some of you skate on it and you like have all sorts of fun. Now, let's just do two different scenarios. Let's say you have a lake and the ice is very thin, maybe half an inch or less. But let's say you sincerely believe that ice is going to hold you. And so you run and you jump out on it. What's going to happen? Whoosh! fall right through, bye-bye, right? Wiley Coyote falls down, right? And you get hypothermia, you might even die because there's, maybe there's no one there to catch you. It doesn't matter how sincerely you believe the ice is gonna hold you, if it's thin, it's not gonna hold you. All right, let's flip that around. Let's say that the ice is super thick, like inches thick, like you can drive a Mack truck over this ice, and some of them do in like the northern places, right? Let's say it's huge ice. But let's say you're like, I'm not buying it, I fell through it once, I'm not doing it again. So you're like, <laughs> tappy, tappy, you know, is the ice going to hold me? Now, no matter how timid your faith is, will the ice hold you? Yes. Why? Because it's the ice, not your faith, that holds you in that moment. You can have the most timid face in the world, but it's the thick ice. Church, the thick ice is Jesus Christ. And when you stand upon him, even if your faith is weak, it will hold because your faith is in Jesus. You're not saved by faith in faith. You're saved by faith in Jesus. The object of your faith matters. But we can have zeal without knowledge or maybe the right, right, not the right knowledge, but we can also have passion or zeal for the wrong things, maybe even well-meaning things, things that, we have, uh, that, that are maybe even good things to be passionate about. We can have zeal for a political platform or agenda, and there's a lot of zeal going around about that. We can have zeal for our personal freedoms. Again, none of these things are necessarily bad, but they can consume us. We can have zeal for just wanting to be right. Oh boy, is that not true on social media today? Oh boy. And in the news, we're all so zealous about being right. I'm not one of those people who thinks that way. I have the right way of thinking. Both sides, actually. Zeal for being right. Did you know that the church of Ephesus, that was their biggest struggle in the, in the book of Revelation? Jesus, he praised them. He says, you are so good at spotting wrong teaching. You're so good at spotting false teaching. You're, fa you're, you're spotting false doctrine and you're calling it out. Yay, way to go. But Jesus said to them, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You don't actually love me. You're so concerned about being right that you forgot about me. Church, I pray that we would not be the kind of people that are more concerned about being right than loving God or loving others. If our zeal does not lead us to glorify Jesus and love other people, something is wrong with our zeal. Zeal for the wrong things. 
A second way that we stumble, and Paul mentions this in verse 6, is that we try to ascend to heaven. He says, the, the, the one of faith does not say, who will ascend to heaven? That is, to, to bring Christ uh, down. Uh, self-righteousness and pride. That is, in other words, it, it is to say that we act like Christ didn't come, or that we have to scale the ladder to heaven ourselves. And this is certainly what the Jews did. They rejected Jesus, and they tried to live righteously on their own in merit-based living. We as human beings all have a natural aversion to grace. We have a natural aversion to grace. It repulses us at first. Do you know why? Because we want to earn it. We don't like being told we're not good enough. We want to earn. I must be good enough. I must be perfect. I must earn it. Call it egocentrism. Call it self-delusion or an overinflated view of ourselves. But we want to feel like we're deserving, and so we want to try really hard. But following Jesus isn't about trying. It's about trusting. Following Jesus isn't about trying. It's about trusting. This doesn't mean we don't put effort into our faith, but God's grace isn't opposed to our efforts, but it's opposed to our earning. God's grace is opposed to us trying to earn his love. Richard Lovelace, the great theologian, says it like this. It's a little deep, but follow along because there's a lot to this. It's really good. We all automatically gravitate toward the assumption that we are justified by our level of sanctification. This is your default mode. We start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in religion. Mm. Since these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we are inevitably moved to a self-righteousness which falsifies the record to achieve a sense of peace. In other words, we base our standing with God with how well we've done lately at doing God things. And here's how you know if you're trying to ascend the heights. Let me ask you, how's your relationship with God going lately? What's the first thing you think of? Well, I haven't read my Bible as much as I should. I haven't prayed as much as I should. I haven't shared my faith as much as I should. I've kind of been not going to church as much as I should. And if you immediately come up with a list of things you haven't done or should do, you are trying to ascend to the heights and basing your status before God on what you do and not on who Jesus is in that moment. But we have this natural aversion to grace. And I remember I did this in college, and this is a, just a vulnerability for me, and I've shared this before with you, but um, it's just fresh in my mind because I had to share this story with my warrior group recently. When I was in college, I had a deep struggle with pornography. And I praise God that God has given me very much victory over that, but it doesn't change the shame that I, I have in my past. And I remember at the time uh, feeling so broken and so devastated and so hating it. And I remember being so sick of it that I would try so hard not to look at stuff, not to lust, not to lust, not to lust. Set, side note, if you're uh, uh, in this room and you're struggling with pornography addiction, you should get in Every Man a Warrior group. If you're a man, if you're a woman, so cultivating holy beauty. But there's a book four of Every Man a Warrior is amazing and really a challenge, right, Taco? It's awesome, right? It's, it's such a challenge to us to get freedom from this porno pornography. I pray that we would not be a church that has a bunch of men and women who are enslaved to pornography in the, in the secret place, but that we would be a people that free from that. 
But I remember in college, it was a huge struggle for me. And I remember basically basing my entire relationship with God on how well I did in that one sin avoidance. And so I would say, how is your relationship with God doing? Well, I haven't looked in porn for a few months. As if that's the definition of what a relationship with God is, not lusting. Didn't matter if I was loving the Lord, didn't matter if I was loving other people, didn't matter if I was reading the word or praying or even like seeking God, you know, like things that we know we, <laughs> that are essential to depend upon Jesus because I had depended my, I'd based my entire life on sin avoidance. And I was trying to ascend, the, ascend to the heights on my own, which made it all the worse when I actually failed. Because when I would sin, my entire spiritual life was in shambles because my entire life was based on my performance. And that leads to the third way that we stumble. If the ascending to the heights doesn't work, then we try to descend to the depths. Shame and self-atonement. Paul says you descend to the depths, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Or in other words, we pay the price or atonement for our own sins instead of Jesus. Let me ask you this. Have you ever said this prayer or ever said this thought? I just can't forgive myself. You ever said that or thought that? I just can't forgive myself. In that moment, you are trying to descend to the depths to pay for your own sin. Christ's cross is not enough for me in this moment because I just can't let it go. I can't receive his healing in this area. And I know that, that some of you in this room right now have a dark past and it haunts you. It haunts you. Maybe even me talking about pornography has brought up a black cloud of haunting over your soul right now. And if you've ever said this, you're trying to descend to the depths. That will not save you and it will not rescue you. Only Jesus can. And recently I've been stumbling this and I shared this with you a few weeks ago that I feel like parenting is like two steps forward, one step back, like always. Does anybody else feel that? Can I get an amen about that, parents? Thank you. I, misery loves company, right? I feel like it. it's like some days it's like, man, I had really great time with that child and that child. And like, oh, shoot, I totally blew up with that one because I have five of them. Ah, ah, this is not good. And I just keep going and making mistakes and doing okay and then making mistakes and doing... And, then, and I remember one night just struggling with this deep despair. And I was like in tears, like talking to my wife about this and like just really devastating me. Like I had this realization, like I am never going to be the perfect dad. I'm never going to be the dad I want to be. And it was devastating to my soul in that moment. And I just remember this deep shame and sadness and frustration and anger all at myself. Like, God, I'm never going to be that. What's wrong with me? And as we were praying about it and talking about it, it was like I felt the Lord speak over me, not audibly, but just in my heart. He said, Matt, you have got to give that up. You have got to stop, stop trying to be perfect and just be faithful. Just repent. Yeah, you're going to sin. You're going to blow it. But come to me, confess it. Let your kids see your confession, and I will magnify my name through your weakness. <laughs> of course, I want to still be a good dad. It's not like, okay, I don't have to be perfect. Sweet. I can just, you know, totally blow it. No. But the pressure's off on me trying to perform, and I can rest in Jesus for that, even if I blow it. 
In Christ, the heights have been scaled. He was sinless and the depths have been plumbed. He became sin for me. In Christ, my zeal can be more informed by his glory. And so as Tim Keller summarizes this text, it sounds like a famous hymn that we've sang, that Christ is a rock we either found our lives upon or stumble over. Christ is a rock we either found our lives upon or stumble over. So what's man's responsibility? Certainly we don't want to stumble over Jesus. Then what should we do? Paul goes on to say some of the most beautiful passages, beautiful verses in all of Scripture. He says, but what, what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen? For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you will profess, that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Amen? You happy about that? I am pretty happy about that. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. I'm just reading the scripture. That's all I'm doing. It's Paul. It's the word of God. It's so good. So what should you do? Call upon the name of the Lord. This is not rocket science. Literally, it says it right there in verse 13. Instead of stumbling over Christ, come to Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. For everyone who calls upon his name will be saved. This is how you become a Christian, and this is the posture of how you live as a Christian. Now, what does that mean to call upon the Lord? Is there like some phone number I call, like 1-800-HI-JESUS? Okay, that was a cheesy pastor joke. I apologize. Sorry, kids. That was a dad joke. Anyways. No, Paul tells us what it means to call upon Jesus. He says back in verse 9, he says this, that you confess and believe the person and work of Christ. To call upon Jesus is to confess and believe in his person and work. You confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart. It's a holistic surrender. Inwardly you believe and outwardly you confess. It is to embrace Jesus' body and soul. First, you confess the person. Jesus is Lord. You confess the person of Christ. Jesus is Lord. Throw that up there, Mitch. That word Lord is the Greek word kurios. This is the same word translated throughout the Bible in the Greek Old Testament as the word Yahweh. So anytime you see the name of God in the Old Testament, it uses the Greek word kurios. The same word is referring to Jesus here. In other words, when you confess Jesus as Lord, you are confessing him as God. And not only that, when you confess him as Lord, in the Roman culture, that was a huge deal and could actually get you killed to say Jesus is Lord. Literally, that could kill you because it was popular in the Roman culture in that day that you could be walking down the street and a centurion would stop you and you would have to say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. 
And so as Christians, they were facing persecution even by saying and confessing with their mouths, Jesus is Lord. This is what baptism came to symbolize in that time and day. We think of baptism today as a really cool thing to celebrate with family and friends in the water. But in that day, when you got baptized, you could get killed when you came out of the water because it was saying, I identify with Jesus. He is my Lord. Caesar is not my master. Jesus is. It was a powerful declaration of the Lordship of Christ. To become a Christian or a follower of Jesus is more than just believing facts, although the facts are important. We'll get to that in a minute. But it is to completely surrender all of yourself to him as Lord. It is to say, I'm done driving Jesus. Here are the keys. And for those of you that are like me, that are anxiety people who are control freaks, which is what anxiety is, it's just a need to be in control, that's really hard to do, to give it up. But this is what it means to surrender and confess him as Lord. I will do what you say. And not only do we confess him as Lord, but we believe in his work, that he lived and died and rose again. The truth of his work is important. What he accomplished matters. Remember, you can't just believe in anything. You have to believe in him, the person and his work, not just a zealous belief in whatever you want. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is our substitute. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the one who grants us righteousness by faith. By the work of Jesus, you are saved. When you trust in God, he has made everything right with you and him. You do not have to ascend the heights that is to be good enough or descend the depths to pay for your own sins. Christ has done it all. That's it. Yes, we can cheer for that. It's Jesus. <laughs> yes, Jesus. Christ has done it all. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he wasn't lying. Christ has done all that needs doing. One of my favorite verses to summarize this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a little bit of a tongue twister, but it's so powerful that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin, that is descend to the depths for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and he ascends to the heights for us, both. And Paul says, if you call upon the Lord, if you trust in Jesus like this, then verse 11 is true, that you will never be put to shame, ever. God will never shame you. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. First, you don't have to atone for your sins. You are righteous. Doesn't matter what you've done in your past, no matter how dark it is, and you won't be disappointed when Jesus is in charge of your life. He will never shame you. Trusting him is always best. So the call of the gospel is this. Man's responsibility is simply to come to Jesus, call upon him, to confess him as Lord, and believe in his work that he's done, and you will be saved. It's a call to stop at the rock in the road. The rock is not in your way. It is the way. Don't try and walk around it. Don't try to stumble over it. Just stop and build your life right there. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we stop with the rock. For Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That means that I wake up each day and I stand before him and base my life upon him and I say, Jesus, 
Help me. Change me. Make me new today. I call upon him every day, not to be saved again, but to live in life of surrender to him. I surrender my whole body, life, and soul. This is why Paul ends and begins Romans 12 with this word. He says, I I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices because all of me is his. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to hit pause, okay? So just pause. There's more to this text that we need to cover. But before we cover that, we need to stop and ponder this. I'm going to ask Kevin to come out and lead us in a song, but I want you to take out your bulletin, and I want you to look at those questions. There's a little box of questions there. If you don't have a bulletin, maybe we can get some people to pass them around, but these questions are written in that box. They're for you to ponder. The rest of Romans 10 focuses outwardly on others, but we can't actually reach out to others until we've fully surrendered ourselves. So we've put some discussion questions in your bulletin in that little box. And if you're with a parent or a friend that has it, you can look along with them. And I want you for the next four to five minutes to ponder those questions. Maybe you can take out your bulletin or you can take out that little insert and write on the back of them and answer these questions. Look over these questions and ponder what we've just been studying. God, do I have zeal without knowledge? And am I more concerned about my passion than I am who I believe in? Am I trying to ascend to the heights and be good enough? Am I trying to descend to the depths and pay for my own sins? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Did you know today, if you are here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you can do that right now. You can call upon him. You can confess and believe that Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. And if you have called upon the Lord, are you fully surrendered to him? Are there areas of your life that are not fully surrendered to the Lord right now? I'll follow you in this way, Jesus, but not with this. What we want to do over the next few minutes is Kevin leads us in a song. I don't want you to sing along. I want you to listen, and I want you to look at the questions in your bulletin and just ponder them with the Lord in a time of just reflection and prayer. Before we go on in this service, we can't go any farther until we deal with ourselves. So let's ponder that together for the next few minutes. within your name this we know this we know you promise never to forsake what you begin you will sustain this we know this we know Call upon the Lord, for He alone is strong enough to save. Rise, if shackles are no more, for Jesus Christ is strong enough to save. All of the heavens and the earth announce the fullness of your worth 
This we know, this we know. And every enemy will flee as we declare your victory. This we know, this we know that I will call upon the Lord for He alone is strong enough to save Rise, your shackles are no more for Jesus Christ has broken every chain and I will call upon the Lord for He alone is strong enough to save. Rise, your shackles are no more. For Jesus Christ has broken every chain. Jesus' name will break every stronghold. Freedom is ours when we call His name. Jesus' name above every other. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Jesus' name will break every stronghold. Freedom is ours when we call His name. Jesus' name above every other. All hail the power of Jesus' name. All hail the power of Jesus' name. I will call upon the Lord, for He alone is strong enough to save. Rise, your shackles are no more. Jesus Christ, you've broken every chain. I will call upon the Lord, for He alone is strong enough to save. And rise, your shackles are no more, for Jesus Christ has broken every chain. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms, they're open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus 
Jesus Christ. Oh, bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. Jesus is calling. Jesus, you're calling. Amen. Amen. Oh, I hope that was helpful to you. Thanks, Kevin, for leading us in that. You remember we said a few weeks ago that the best missionaries out there are the ones that are willing to do time in here in the secret place. We can't go out and be on mission with anyone else if our hearts are not fully surrendered to the Lord. All right, let's go on in our text. This is not Sermon 2. Trust you, it's not. I'm not. Just a little bit more to say here, but some of these powerful words uh, once we know of, of what God has done for us and we call upon him, what's our last responsibility? So I'll read verse 13. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask you, did they not hear? Of course they did. He's talking about the Jews. Their voice has gone out into the earth, their words to the ends of the world. I ask again, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. Now talking about the Gentiles. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was revealed to myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Hmm. Once we know the beauty of Christ, that we stop stumbling over him, but begin to trust and call upon him, that we have peace with God, once we've tasted of that goodness, then we become like the psalmist who says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's been said that evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where to get the bread. That's all we're doing. We're just pointing others to where to find life, to, to not live in your shame and your confusion that our friends and family and neighbors, that we have the opportunity to call them and the privilege to tell them the way, that we have the opportunity to tell others the way in our lives. That's our last responsibility. This is God's plan for how he's gonna reach the world, to save sinners and then to send them out as missionaries to other sinners. Once they've tasted Christ, they are the best ones to tell others what he tastes like. And Paul is clear to emphasize here, there is no plan B. And so he asks multiple questions, all with the same answer. He says, how can they call on one whom they have not believed? Answer, they can't. Everybody say, they can't. They can't. How can they believe in one whom they have not heard? Answer, they can't. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? Answer, 
How can, they, how can someone preach unless they are sent? Answer, they can't. These are all rhetorical questions with obvious answers. Here's how the process works. God sends, we preach, people hear, some believe, believers call, they're saved. This is how it works. This is how we reach the world. God sends, we preach, people hear, some believe, believers call, and they are saved. Now I ask you, church, is God still sending his servants? Yes. Matthew 28, go and make disciples. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. If we preach, will people hear it? Yes. If they have ears, they will hear. Okay. If people hear, will some believe? Yes, yes, of course they will. Revelation says that there will people, be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue around the throne. That means you can go to an unreached people group in the middle of nowhere and someone's coming out of there because God wants people from every nation in his throne. Someone's coming out. Yes, if we preach, some will believe. And if some will believe, will they call? Yes. Everyone who believes will call upon the name of the Lord. Now, where is the only chance for breakdown in this process? Us. Thank you. Us. The preachers. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about all of us. We preach. That's the question. Will we preach? Now, I'm going to deal with some of your excuses. You might say, well, isn't there some other way that God can save people? No. No. Romans 10, 17, really, right here in the text says, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. They must hear the gospel. Even in cases in the Muslim world where Muslims are having dreams or visions of Jesus, many of them are seeing Jesus and, and wanting to know about Jesus and then God is bringing a servant to tell them the gospel. This is what happened to Pastor Matt when he was in Mali, West Africa. Do you remember this? Back a few years ago when they were visiting Mali, West Africa, they were lost and they came to this random village and this village leader comes out to them and says, we have been praying for the big creator to send someone to tell us who he is. They knew who the creator was. They wanted to know him, but God needed to send his servants. And so I would say they weren't lost at all. They were right where God wanted them to be. This is why we go. This is why we go to Toledo to preach the gospel to the Arabic peoples. This is why Mark and Nashwan are preaching at Oak Bend this morning, trying to raise support and get a team together. This is why Matt is in Malawi, uh, Africa right now, training church planters so that we could tell the gospel to all of those who have never heard it. Now, some of you, I know excuses, excuses. Some of you still might say, but Matt, I can't do that. I'm not sure I know how to share the gospel and I'm not good at talking to people. I don't know Arabic. I don't know. I don't have enough money to go to Africa. Okay, okay, okay. All right, I get that. Let's just start small. Tell the people you do know what you know. Okay? Tell the people you do know what you know. So let me ask you, do you believe Jesus died and rose again for your sins? Okay. That was not a rhetorical. Thank you for answering out loud. Have you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Yes. I hope you have. And if you're here and you haven't, you can do that right now. Have you surrendered your life to him? Some of you are like, eh, yes. What difference has that made in your life? You don't have to answer this out loud, but I hope a lot. Tell them that. 
Tell them that Jesus died and rose again, that you've called upon him to be saved, and what Jesus means to you. Go and tell. And who do you know? Your neighbors, your friends, your classmates? Yes, kids, I'm talking to you. Here's the truth. You are the best evangelist to your people. Throw that up there, Mitch. You are the best evangelist to your people, your circle of influence. The best person to bring the light of Jesus to your friends and neighbors is you. And some of you are like, I don't buy it. If if that preacher guy would come over to my house, he would share the gospel and those people would get saved. I don't know why I did that voice, but you know what I mean. But you immediately think, I don't know, I need a pastor to come in and do this job because I can't do it. All right, I'm listening to all your excuses. Let's do a little experiment, okay? A little thought experiment. Uh, By show of hands, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. You can just raise your hand if this is true of you. How many of you, don't raise your hands until I'm done, keep, calm down. How many of you became a Christian or placed your faith in Jesus Christ because someone you had never met shared the gospel with you? Maybe a door-to-door evangelist, maybe a conference or a crusade? How many of you came to know Jesus because someone you never met before shared the gospel with you? Would you raise your hand? Okay. I'll say six, seven. Awesome. Okay. Those are valuable, and we need that. That's why we send people to the Basque region, because they don't have any friends that are Christians. So we got to go. Got to go tell them, and that's important, okay? Put your hands down. Now, how many of you became a Christian because someone you knew, a parent, a friend, a loved one, a church member that you knew closely, shared the gospel with you, and you believed it? How many of you got saved because someone you knew led you to Christ? Hmm. I'm not going to count that. 98% probably of you became Christians because someone you knew shared the gospel with you. That is God's plan A for this world. They don't need me. Well, my neighbors need me. They need you. Somebody you knew told you about Jesus, and now somebody you know needs to hear Jesus from you. This is God's plan. Can you imagine if every single person in this room, right now, if every single person in this room, Easter is in about a month, if we had one gospel conversation with someone we already know, friend, family member, classmate, coworker, one gospel conversation in the next month, what would happen? And did you know that the time that most people are willing to come to church is Easter? Did you know that? Most people in America try, at least, are willing to come to church on Easter. And most of them are willing to come if they're invited by a friend. Can you imagine if every single person in this room right now invited one person to come to church with them on Easter? We would not have enough seats. Wouldn't that be cool, though? Wouldn't that be awesome? Okay. You said it was awesome. I challenge you to do it. I challenge you in the next month to have one gospel conversation with someone you already know and tell them what you know. Jesus died and rose again for your sins, that you've called upon him. And you know what? Invite them to come to church with you on Easter. You got one month, (laughs) okay? That's my challenge to us as a church. That would be cool if we had like standing room only on Easter. How cool would that be, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? 
Okay, everybody's like, oh, that kind of sounds awesome. It's like, yes, it would be awesome. Come on. This is what it's about. It's not about having more numbers. It's about more people hearing about who Jesus is. And some of you might still be like, but Matt, what about those that I've tried to share the gospel with that don't believe? Well, that's what Paul finishes with, right? Paul concludes this passage in very realistic fashion. There, there's some that don't believe, that are hardened. But Paul doesn't give up. He's praying for them at the beginning of chapter 10. And let me just give you this prayer as a little piece of armor for you as you think about those that are hard to, to convert or hard to tell about Jesus. This is what Timothy, Paul says to Timothy. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. This is good and pleases God our Savior. And I want every one of you to read this with me out loud. Verse 4. Who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? That means that God wants all people to be saved. So here's a great prayer to pray for your friend or your family member or your lost loved one. God, I know that that's what you want. I'm going to ask you for it. Will you save my friend? Will you save my family member? Will you save my loved one? And will you give me the courage to speak about it? Be careful what you ask for, because he just might answer it. He just might give you that opportunity. So pray that prayer and share and tell. So to review, don't stumble over Jesus found your life on the rock, don't walk over him or walk around him. Just stay right there and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Confess and believe in Jesus and then surrender wholly to him. And then tell others the way to find Jesus. Start praying now for our lost family members and friends and neighbors. Remember that you are the best one to share the gospel with your friend. God puts you in their life for a reason. May we be faithful to that. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for us. That you give us the privilege of calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That we don't have to save ourselves. We don't have to ascend to the heights or descend to the depths. We don't have to have all the passion and, and work up ourselves into a frenzy to feel real spiritual. We just have to call upon you. That's so good. We can just run to you, God, and you will save. And the good news is, God, we've got friends out there who don't know that. Or maybe they've heard it and they haven't believed it because they haven't heard it from someone they trust. Could we be that trusted friend who tells them the truth? that we could tell them, man, you really should think about this because this is what Jesus has done for me. May we be that people that testifies verbally what you've done, that we would confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We respond now in worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.